Uh, my name is Scotty. Uh, I'm the priest in charge of this here congregation. Um, uh, yeah, lovely to um, <laughs> what a congregation. Um, lovely to have you all here. Heaps of new faces tonight. So if you're like, oh, I feel a little awkward in this room, don't know if I fit in, you're one of many who probably feels like they don't fit in. So please feel free to not fit in um, in our space. And we'd love to shout you dinner afterwards, but I think Dale talked about that um, before. Um, yeah, some uh, cool stuff. Uh, we have made uh, a little habit as a leadership over the last year of joining um, our tikanga Māori brothers and sisters um, down at Pipitea Marae once a month um, to join them for a service. Um, and, uh, and that was today that we were down there. Dale, Jess and myself uh, went down. Um, and it's just been a really, really cool um, journey. If, if you're not familiar, in the Anglican Church, around about 1992, um, there was this decision made that... Um, that Māori and Pacifica peoples would be given autonomy for their own congregations and their own like buildings and resources. Um, and so the Anglican Church has what we call three tikanga of Māori, Pacifica and Pākehā. Um, and it's this really cool thing where um, basically, yeah, it was this, this move forward to go, you know what, actually, um, Māori should not have to do church um, in, a, um, in a Pākehā way um, and should be free to decide how they do that. So we've been going and joining our, um, our brothers and sisters down there. And I think... Don and Rohina were going to come on tonight, but they haven't, um, so hopefully they will another week. But just to, to fill you guys in on that um, journey, um, also Jesse's birthday today, um, and um, I just thought, like, just briefly, maybe like two or three, th- two or three people could say something lovely about Jesse. Um, just jump up, like, wherever you are. I am going to go. What are you pointing at, Lindley? And yes, also and David. Yep, yep. Um, the includer over here. All right. <laughs> Bloody Wellington, a tolerance culture. Oh, we can't say happy birthday to anyone without saying happy birthday to everyone. Um, all right, anyway. Um, can I have someone get up and say something nice to Jessie? Yes. Um, Jessie was the first person to have coffee with me after I first got here and was like not totally 100% sure about all this Jesus stuff. Um, and like, yeah, it was just really welcoming and gave me a lot of direction and yeah, have really valued you since then. Thank you. You're amazing. What other who have we got? Yes. Um, I just want to acknowledge Jesse for putting up with the motley crew that is Calvin Chapter <laughs> and leading us so faithfully. You're amazing, and we just like would be so lost without you. Aww. All right, one more. Yes. Jesse is a really great teacher and actually lives out what she teaches, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to say that before I teach. <laughs> <laughs> Um, awesome. Okay, and now we're going to say three nice things to David, which will feel totally genuine. Um, so, so if uh, someone jump up for David, maybe one of his mates that came on tonight. Finn, where are you? Up here. <laughs> to offend someone, but um, but we're going already, so this is going good, this is going good. Um, Alright, um, hey, so we are in the series um, with our seasonal guide uh, book, um, 
this thing here, um, freely, freely receive, freely give, which is about this idea that um, God pours out his love into our lives and then we um, are then called to give what God has given to us to a hurting and to a broken world. Um, and so the first four weeks of this, we were talking about what it means to receive the love of God. Um, this uh, last couple of weeks, we have been looking at what it means for us to then love out of what we've been given, um, to freely give. Um, and so I am going to invite Amy to come up here. Yes, she is going to do our scripture reading for tonight, so why don't you give it up for Amy. Um, this is 1 John 4, 7-21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Awesome. Thanks, Amy. It's a beautiful piece of scripture, eh? Um, and um, one of the things that struck, struck me initially about the scriptures as I read it um, was all these interesting passages, which I realised if you... Sometimes I think one of the good things you can do with scripture is ask what confuses you or what offends you. It's often a good place to start. It's like, what is the thing that doesn't make sense to you? And then follow that. Um, and so some of the stuff that didn't make sense to me um, is all this in and through stuff. So you might have picked up some of that language, that we might live through him. God lives in us. We live in him. He in us. God lives in them. But also, they live in God. Whoever lives in them lives in God. That's interesting kind of stuff, you're right, interesting kind of language. Um, so what we have here is that everything we are is housed in God, but then all of God is also housed in us, and every action we take is through God. That's quite confusing, right? Find that confusing? Um, so he holds me, but I hold him, and I operate through him. It's kind of sounding like physics. But it's actually it's this doctrine called unity with Christ. This idea that we have unity 
with Christ, which, which I think is probably like a good tempering to our idea that we have relationship with Christ. Like very much our, our idea um, in the last hundred years of church history has been that it's about me having a personal relationship with Jesus and that Jesus is my friend who sits in a chair opposite me and we have a conversation. Um, but this talks to something more mystical, eh? Of the idea of God who inhabits us, whom we inhabit, and whom everything we do moves through. And, and I was trying to think of, like, how do, you, how do you get your head around this? How do you explain this? And um, I thought immediately of when I was uh, about five or six. I was a really, really terrible swimmer. Um, and no good at it, and actually was kind of like slightly terrified by the idea. And my swimming instructor didn't help. Um, he was a guy by the name of Dougal, um, and, um, and his um, approach to swimming um, was just, just, just try harder. Um, and so one particularly frustrated day, what Dougal did, I remember at Tawapul, is he just picked me up a five or six year old bundle and he just threw me into the deep end. <laughs> and I just remember going like down, 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 down. And I think the weirdest thing, like it kind of shows probably my like slightly um, nihilistic trait, is I don't really remember struggling. Like, I was just like, all right. <laughs> this means so good. <laughs> like, you know, I ate some McDonald's. <laughs> like, <laughs> had a birthday there once. This has been good, all right. Um, and, um, but, uh, but I think about this idea, um, this idea of what it is to be to be in God, for God to be in us, for us to move through him. And um, think about this kind of slightly dark metaphor of, of drowning. Um, <laughs> um, and this idea of, um, of God, um, of, of water that, that fills us, of water that we are immersed within, um, and, and, and also water that surrounds every action we take as well. Um, and actually one of the, the metaphors in scripture is that we have died with Christ and we have risen again with him. Um, so this idea that there is actually a change that has happened in us when we know Christ and when we are baptized and we follow Christ, that we actually, when Jesus entered into the grave, we, unified with Christ, in him, in him, him and us, us through him, went into the grave with him, and then we came up a new creation. So there is a kind of a death here, and I think this, this metaphor kind of speaks to it. But, but John in this passage, he understands that what he's saying here is quite abstract and quite mystical. Um, and so in this passage, John sets out to answer the question, well, how can you tell that this has happened to you? How can you tell that God is in you, that you are in God, and that everything you do moves through God? What is the litmus test for that? And he says, well, because you are overflowing with love. That is how you know that you are housed in God, that you house God, and that your whole being moves through him. As if love comes out from you, that is the evidence that this transformation has happened in you. And so then John continues by telling us what this, this love is like. So I want to look at some of those scriptures today. And the first, it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Similar verse in Romans 5.8 says this, Christ arrived, this is the, mes the message version, Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for the sacrificial death when we were too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. So some paraphrasing of these scriptures. This is love, that we didn't love God and God still loved us. And the second, Jesus didn't wait for us to love him. He showed his love for us by giving his everything before he even knew if we wanted it. 
It's a strange larvae. Like, that's almost as confusing as, as in and of and through and out and all of that. Um, so uh, the, 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 the thing I thought of when I thought about this immediately was like, I don't know if any of you guys have seen on YouTube, you can look them up, but like public proposals that go really wrong. <laughs> have you seen any of these? Like some guy is just like totally convinced that she is going to say yes. And so he chooses a football stadium full of 80,000 people. <laughs> That's how sure he is. And he kneels down and everyone watches it and he's on the big screen and then she just kind of like covers her face and runs off. And it's this thing of like, at one level, you're like, oh my gosh, like that guy must be in love. But what were you doing? <laughs> like, what were you doing? And I kind of like, I think this is, this is kind of the nature of the love that Christ actually has for us. That before he knew, he puts his entire self naked, bruised, bloodied on a cross. That he kneels down before creation and says, will you have me? You have all of me already if you want me and awaits for our reply. Now, we live in this, this interesting world um, where an example of this, right, would be last year, there was um, rumours that the Assad regime was again going to use chemical weapons in Syria. And so what Donald Trump does is he issues this thing called a preemptive strike. Anyone know, heard, heard this phrase before? So the preemptive strike is this idea, well, we know that, that these guys could do something really evil, so what he does is he, he fires a whole lot of missiles into Syria and he lands them on this airstrip just to let them know that if you do this, there is more coming. And we live, I think, in the world of the preemptive strike. And it's not just at this global level, it's not just at this level of missiles, but that actually, like, we are, as a culture, obsessed with putting shots across the bow to let people know that if they cross us, these will be the consequences. You know what I think is the most, like, kind of um, localised level of a preemptive strike is a prenuptial agreement? Just so you know, if you hurt me, I can walk away with what I came with. Half the point of marriage is to be hurt and find a way through it. <laughs> and we come in with a preemptive strike to protect ourselves, to not have to be vulnerable, to never have to be truly seen. See, John says if you want to know what love looks like, boiled down, it's not a preemptive strike, it's preemptive love. It's preemptive generosity before we know the actions of the other, before. Jesus knew, knew how humanity would respond. Preemptive love. <laughs> that doesn't wrestle people into compliance, but confronts them with love. It's quite a different thing, and our, our world lives a, a wildly different picture to this. I can remember um, a few weeks ago, on Wednesday nights, we go down to uh, Cuba Street and we play handball on a, uh, from 9.30 to 11. Um, we started a little community house about five years ago. A bunch of us lived together, pray together, um, do hospitality together. And, uh, and so we asked this question, well, what is our backyard if we were to get to know Cuba Street? How would, we, how would we have people in our backyard? And we're like, well, we don't have one. We have a car park, and it's kind of lame. Um, and, uh, and so what we did is we got some chalk and a ball, and we just, GC and myself, and um, Jen's been there over the years. I can't remember who the original crew was. Hamish and Richard, went down there and um, basically went down there for um, about two years and just nobody came along. And so it's basically us just playing handball in the middle of um, Cuba Street. 
Um, and around that time, I was doing some work with the city council. Like, I remember a few times Justin Lester, the mayor, walking by, like a year apart, and just being like, what are you doing? Why are you out here? Um, but um, gradually, this, 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 um, this grew, and, um, and often we'll have a bunch of people from different backgrounds come along um, to this. And uh, earlier this year, we had a couple of young kids who came along, um, and they'd trained in from um, Porirua, and they'd got, got stuck in the city for the weekend. Um, and, um, and as we were about to leave at the end of the night, they come up and they say, um, hey, we're actually really hungry. We haven't eaten today. And so we end up going to Burger King together. Um, and it's this constant, like, um, back and forth of uh, kind of, I'm welcome, and then I'm not. I'm welcome, and then I'm not. Um, and so we, we get this, um, this, this feed of Burger King, and then there was just this moment, uh, and I think it was a real Holy Spirit moment, um, where I just said to these young guys, I said, can I eat with you? And um, bizarre thing to offer when you've shouted the melee, can I eat with you? And there was this little moment where like, they sort of looked at each other and I was like, oh my gosh, they're not going to let me eat with them. <laughs> these guys are not going to let me eat with them. And it was funny, like I went back to like high school, there's these two 15 year olds, this 33 year old guys just shouted them dinner. <laughs> And I'm like, I feel like a loser. <laughs> they've ruined me. And then they're like, oh, yeah. And so we sat down and we ate together. But I think this is the heart of this, at a really simple level of this preemptive love. It's the kind of love that leads us into a place of vulnerability, into a place of being exposed. So often when we talk about love, we're actually in control. We actually preserve all our rights to exit. It's like when you go on a developing world mission trip, everybody there knows that if you want to go home tomorrow, you could just go home tomorrow. We're not really committed, right? If I want to fly home to New Zealand, if India gets too much for me, I can go home. But to actually be in that place where we stand naked and exposed before another, and briefly, Scotty feels like a schoolchild in front of these two 15-year-olds, I think that's the kind of love that, that God invites to us, that preemptive love that allows the possibility of humiliation. Because that is what Christ did, isn't it? He was humiliated on the cross before he knew whether we would accept that. And this is the kind of love that we are called to. And so John is saying that if we are really in Christ, and Christ is in us, and if our actions are moving through Christ, then there is a posture of preemptive love we must all have, of assuming we will love first. You know, there's, we are told to be forgiving. What is it for forgiving? The decision to forgive is made long before the offence. So whether we have a posture of forgiveness, we are told to forbear with one another. You know, the decision of whether we will bear with one another is decided long before it is required whether we will bear with one another. What posture do we live out of? Do we live out of a posture of preemptive strikes or of preemptive love? And the kind of love that's in us, through us, around us love is a preemptive love. God's love is a preemptive love. We are called to preemptively loving people before we know that our love will be accepted. It's rough, eh? But this is freely received, freely given. Second scripture says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Love is by definition embodied. Love is by definition embodied. God would say it is not love unless it has flesh on. Love is not a feeling, people. 
that it is not love until it has been embodied. Um, there's a, a quote from a guy, M. Scott Peck, that's featured in this great book, 21 Elephants. And, um, <laughs> and it says this, it says, When we love someone, our love becomes demonstrable or real only through our exertion, through the fact that for someone we take an extra step or walk an extra mile. Love is not effortless. To the contrary, love is effortful. Love is effortful. That it is not love until it's embodied. It's all talk until then. And see, we believe something that no other religion does. And this is, this is an exciting thing. At the core of our story as Christians is from John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We believe that all the vastness of God, all the mystical in us, through, around, was consolidated into a man named Jesus who came and dwelt among sinful humanity. That's huge, right? That's huge. So God does not stand idly by and allow his humanity to suffer alone. Our God entered into the human story as Jesus. The all-powerful God became all-vulnerable in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Like when we think of what a God is like, we think of thunderbolts, we think of, of, of white beards, but what we don't think of is a, a small, and it says in Isaiah, unattractive man. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus was unattractive. It's in our scriptures. A small, unattractive man beaten and bloodied, nailed to a cross. Our all-powerful God becomes all-vulnerable. No, no other religion gets this. God does not lob love grenades from far away. God gets into the filth, even to the point of becoming mortal and dying on a cross. I love um, Matthew 9. We hear the story of a woman, and she's had menstrual bleeding for 12 years that hasn't stopped. And she... Um, she, because of this, she is unclean in her community. And so she, she couldn't hang out with anyone. She wasn't welcome. She was shunned and pushed to the side. And there's the story where Jesus was in a crowd. And she gets on her hands and knees and she crawls through the dust and the dirt. And she reaches out and she grabs the hem of his garment because she believes if she grabs the hem of that garment, then, then she will be healed. And she grabs the hem of Christ's garment and then we hear that she is healed and Jesus felt power go out from him and said, who touched me? Now, one of the beautiful things about this that some theologians have, have noted is that what she does when she touches the Son of God in that moment is not only does she become clean, but she makes the Son of God ceremonially unclean. Our clean God, our up-in-the-heavens God becomes flesh and becomes unclean to the world. That's powerful. God becomes unclean. I can remember a few years ago, um, a friend of ours who we were journeying with, um, Susie, who actually this weekend um, has um, run 62 kilometres, an ultra marathon, and has run to the point on Mount Perk where she tried to take her life several years ago to, to, as, a, as a, a gesture of hope. It's incredibly beautiful. But I can remember journeying with Susie in the early days, and um, we were... Um, Susie's story is around, is around self-harm, and um, I remember we would go to these late-night hospital visits, and we would be at her, um, at her house, um, putting her back together, and, um, and I can remember that there would be these nights where we'd come home maybe at two or three in the morning, and you're just like exhausted, emotionally exhausted, and just, it's late at night, and then I'd just, you know, fall asleep, and then I'd wake up in the morning and, and get up in the mirror, and I would see this blood on my sleeves, that I hadn't noticed at the time. You see, I don't believe that we can love from a distance. 
I don't believe that there's a way for us to enter into the pain of other people without finding some of our own pain. I don't think there's a way to enter into the mud and the blood and the muck of people's lives without some of it getting on us. It's not an option. You know, we want to put the coin in the bucket. We want to sign the change.org petition. We want to be a professional charity worker. But tidy love has never transformed anyone or anything. Tidy love has never transformed anyone or anything. This culture of this world wants tidy love. The love of Christ is a stinky, smelly, unhygienic, disgusting love. It is. It's right in the thick of it. It is in the places that make you recoil the most. It is in the places where you do not want to be. It is in the places that make you gag. And it is in the places that leave a mess on you as well. That is the kind of love that Christ calls us to. That is the kind of love that is in us, around us, through us, as being the hands and feet of Jesus. Real love is coming to take away your comfortable house. Real love is coming to take away your career. Real love is coming to key your car and break your iPhone screen. That's what real love looks like. Real love is coming to steal your stuff. This is real love. Number one, God's love is a preemptive love. We are called to be a preemptively loving people. Number two, God's love is a filthy love. We are called to enter into the filth with him. And finally, another scripture. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So the scripture talks about two very different ideas of love. Firstly, it talks about a love that is afraid, a love that is motivated by fear. The kind of love that is an abused partner who cannot leave. The kind of love that manipulates and coerces. The kind of love that says, I'll burn you in hell if you don't love me. Doesn't really sound like our God, does it? No. Jesus actually says this kind of fear-motivated love just isn't love. It's not love. But he talks about, John talks about the second kind. He says love that removes fear. The kind of love that helps someone who is deeply damaged and deeply broken learn to trust again and learn to belong again. The kind of love that doesn't say, I'm disappointed in you, but instead I see who you really are and I want who you really are. Beautiful poem by Michael Lennig, you've probably heard me share a few times, but it's just so appropriate for the scripture. It says, there are only two feelings, love and fear. There are only two languages, love and fear. There are only two activities, love and fear. There are only two motives, two procedures, two frameworks, two results, love and fear, love and fear. I can remember as... Um, a little, a little kid, um, when I was about eight or nine, I just had like the most horrific uh, stretch of, of bullying at primary school. And um, I decided in my mind, somewhere along the way, that because all the kids who were cool in my class had Nikes, if I could just get Nikes, then I might be in. <laughs> and so I remember I set up a little star chart on the wall um, for, for my mum. And I'm like, I'll do these chores. And when I get to the right number of stars, I can have Nikes. I was so excited about this. And so it probably took about three or four months. And all the stars built up, and I did all the dishes, and I mowed the lawns badly, and, 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 and did, did all the stuff. And, um, 
and then I could have my Nikes, and, and we could only afford the cheap Nikes. Um, so, um, so we get these, this pair of Nikes, and I remember walking into the classroom just feeling like 10 feet tall. This is where it all works out. And I remember this voice yelling, Scotty got cheap Nikes! And at that moment, it was like the whole wind was knocked out of me. You know, this is the power of fear as a motivator. It's that it makes you think, if I can just get far enough, if I can just get the right thing, if I can just have the right things, then maybe I will be included or accepted. Maybe if I can just do enough, maybe if I can change who I am, then maybe I will be welcomed in. That's the cries of the marginalised all throughout our city. Maybe if I could change something about myself, I will be accepted. You know, that's what fear does to us. What we're really talking about here is what compels us to get up in the morning. What compels us to get up in the morning? What compels us to obey Jesus? What compels us to be good to our neighbour? What motivates us? And the fear way says, do it my way or you'll never know love. That is the lie of fear. Do it my way or you'll never know love. And the love way says, you are loved. Now come and learn my ways. It's a very, very different thing. I was thinking about this thing earlier today, about what it would look like if the church were to be of this kind of love. If we were to be preemptive. If we were to be filthy love, if we were to be this kind of not fear love, what that would look like, and the ridiculous picture that came to mind, this isn't God's by, by the way, this is just like me watching too much TV, but when I was a little kid, I can remember, does anyone remember Looney Tunes? And, um, and what would happen, right, is um, that some uh, southern belle, who you couldn't quite see, would bake a pie. I think she was always kind of cut off from the neck down. So you'd just see the arms working in the oven. And then she would lay that pie on a windowsill. And then, like, Wiley Coyote would smell it. And, like, miraculously, his feet and arms would lift off the ground. And he would just float towards the pie. <laughs> now, I had a, a flatmate a few years ago um, who, um, who used food as a weapon. <laughs> and so would spend all afternoon cooking. And if you did not come home and participate in this meal, and if you did not enjoy this meal, then you were not just rejecting the meal, but you were rejecting that flatmate. We probably know someone who's used food as a weapon, right? Or talent as a weapon. Now, I think at the worst, the church is a place that uses what we have as a weapon. But I think what we are meant to be is a people who lay out the aroma of grace and people are just drawn towards it. You know, I've seen this over and over and over again in my life. When I was working as a youth worker at Zeal, those inevitable conversations that would come with a young person of, what do you have that I'm missing? What is it you have, you and your friends have, that I'm missing? Like the feet lift off the ground and the aroma draws in. I've had these conversations at Hamble on a Wednesday night. What do you have that I don't have? What do you guys have that means even when it's hard, you can go through the same things I go through, but somehow there's joy and hope. I, had some, um, I was doing a uh, talk in a social studies class the other week at Wellington High School. They asked for a priest to come in. It's ridiculous, eh? And, um, and so I went in as a priest. I put on my collar and everything. Um, and, um, and to have these young people go, what gives you hope? You know, that is like the aching wound of our generation. 
what gives you hope? And I really think the job of the church, you know, it says in the scriptures that they will know us by the love we have for one another. They will know us by that smell, by that aroma. But I think our job as the church is sometimes just to lay the sweet aroma that Christ is in and around and through everything we do and then people will be drawn to Christ. God's love is a preemptive love. We are called to be a preemptive people. God's love is a filthy love. We're called to enter into the filth with him. God's love is a compelling love. We are called to draw people in by the aroma of grace. So let's just go back to what John said at at the beginning. Is Christ in you? Are you in Christ? Does your whole life move through Christ? Well, do you love only when you know you'll be loved? Or do you love preemptively, generously and vulnerably? Do you talk from your keyboard about the needs of the poor and the marginalised? Or do you enter into the mess and muck? Let it stain you too. You know, Jesus was called a friend of sinners and drunkards. And wouldn't it just be a great testimony to everyone in this church if we were just seen as hanging out with all the wrong people all the time? It would tell us we're looking something like Jesus. Do you operate from a place of fear, promising people love only for good behaviour? Or does your whole life reek of the aroma of grace drawing people in? This is the kind of people I want us to be. And this is what their in and around and through love looks like. And so um, a response for us tonight. Actually, let's just sit for a moment. Why don't we just sit in a, a minute's silence and just, just look for a word or a phrase or a prompting of the Spirit that is sitting with you from there. Feel free to close your eyes if you want.